90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm surviving this week. That's the best I can do. (laughs) (laughs) Just surviving? What's going on? Uh, Well, as you know, but maybe not everyone else, um, I give my students oral midterms, meaning that I have them come in and meet with me for half an hour, each student, and I have over 40 students, and they have a test like that. (laughs) Well, this sounds kind of like last March. Yeah, it's, it's been the past four years. Um, and when I had 25 students, it wasn't so bad, but when I have 40, it makes for a rough week. (laughs) (laughs) It's good for him though. It's really good for him. We can discuss the merits of it at a later date when I am further away from it. And again, think it's a good idea, but right now I'm second guessing myself. (laughs) It's too soon. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) What about you? (laughs) What have you been doing? (laughs) Well, I've been staying busy. I actually joined uh, some co-workers from Unidata uh, through their invitation, and we were all on a podcast called uh, Python In It. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> which I will, I will link into the show notes if it's out yet. It comes out on the same day this show releases. Mm. So if it's not in the show notes, be sure to check our Twitter or Facebook, and I'll put a link up. But we talked about what we're doing with Python at Unidata and meteorological data and how weather models work and whether we thought machine learning and artificial intelligence would ever play a role in weather forecasting. It just went all over the place. Oh, excellent. That sounds like it was fun. It was. Even though Uh, you're cheating on me again, I see. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And the only other exciting news was I actually found a Davis Vantage Pro weather station to put up. Yeah, so there's one of these on my parents' farm Mm -hmm. in Arkansas that I have with some Python magic uh, posting to a website where you can go see it. Actually, it looks like a a storm earlier this week took out the anemometer after Uh a 66-mile-an-hour gust. Yeah, it was uh, Uh, was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an identical station. I'm going to put it up here in Colorado and use the same Python stuff this time on a Raspberry Pi to post all of the data dynamically. The squirrel ate our Davis weather station cord again, so we've had some issues with ours. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Well, we'll have to Raspberry Pi up your weather station. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what I was getting at. (laughs) (laughs) Well, excellent. But, Um, But that's not all that's been going on out there, right? I mean, it's been pretty windy. It's been windy here, and as you mentioned, when we had some storms roll through earlier in the week, it was relatively windy in the Central Plains as well. Uh, yes. But I thought it'd be a good time to talk about winds coming off the mountains, because that's something that we get a lot here along the entire Rockies uh, and other places in the world that have high mountains. You get all these weird things due to orographic forcing or just topography. Uh, <gasps> So I thought it'd be good to dig into this a little bit and figure out what exactly is going on because I'm a little rusty. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I talk about these in my native science class just because these wind events are so interesting. There's a lot of legends behind them and there's a lot of colloquialisms associated with these winds too. So it's, it's a good topic. It's the time of year that they're happening and 
Yeah, so let's talk about these guys. Yeah, so I will start by saying, uh, I believe it was Monday of this week, I left the house at about 6.15 in the morning to drive into work, and it was incredibly windy, there was dust blowing everywhere, and it was really warm. (laughs) Which isn't uh, super common for um, February in Boulder, Colorado. No. So that is one of those things where I said, hmm, (laughs) we should talk about this because there are interesting processes going on here. Uh, And they, these winds often occur, right? So maybe at at night or in the daylight or, you know, the dawn dusk hours. mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And um, up north, generally, um, even further north than you, there, these winds are called snow eaters because just like you just said, John, they're really warm. And so when these things occur in anywhere from November to May, there's generally snow on the ground up north. And after these events, which can last, you know, 12 hours or so, um, the snow's gone. So they're called snow eaters. And we're not talking about a little warming. The one the other day was not that much. But with the long-lived events, you're talking about tens of degrees. Exactly. So some people say four seasons in 24 hours with these wind events. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's about exactly how it goes. Um, There's a lot of really cool stories about these winds because they obviously they first start on the ridges, which we'll talk about here in a minute, because they are orographically affected, just meaning they're affected by mountains. Um, and that they said that blowing up on the ridges first sort of acts as a warning to all the people of these impending condition changes, because they can be pretty catastrophic, I guess. Oh, yes, they definitely can be. But before we go any further, I found an interesting tidbit that said that these don't have to be always warm winds. You can also have cold mountain effect winds. See, (laughs) I don't understand this. I told you they're called snow eaters. Cold wind is not going to eat snow. <laughs> right. And, you know, if you can believe it, there was conflict on the internet. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Call Al Gore. There, there seems to be some disagreement in exactly what these are called, because some places say that the winds are named by regions. Some say they're named by whether they're warm or cold. Uh, a boar wind is one term I saw for the cold winds, though another source said that that could only be in a different region of the world. Hmm. We'll get to the physics of how this could happen later, but there are observations of both warm and cold high wind events that were caused by topography. That's interesting. But what what, what we're going to call them is up in the air. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I, I I would argue that, you know, Most of these, and we sort of got to talking about this as we argued about what a Chinook wind is. I think we argued about it in an episode, and then obviously we carried that argument later on after the episode was over. (laughs) And I mean, I've always thought of these as warm, warm winds, and most of the legends that I've read associate these with warm winds. But we'll talk about how it happens in general, right? Yeah, and you know, I mean, some of the things that I saw online even said that where I am in the country, they shouldn't be called Chinook winds. That's just further north. Right, and and I've heard that as well. So I'll give you that. So whatever you want to call it, let's talk about what happens to air when it goes over mountains, <laughs> because luckily the physics is going to be the same. 
<laughs> See, this is the language of science. <laughs> it doesn't matter right. what your colloquial name for your hot or cold wind coming off of it means. Um, right. So I love this because this is one of those things that, well, I know you love this too, because just like you've said before, you know, this is geology influencing meteorology, influencing geology. It's kind of neat. Um, this is kind of actually a really hot topic in geology now is to talk about how how landscapes, so geomorphology, we've had a geomorphologist on here before, affects climate. So it's not just these weather events like these winds we're going to talk about, but um, long-term climate can also be affected by what the topography is. So this is a very interesting sort of interaction that hasn't necessarily been explored in either meteorology or geology. Right. It's kind of this in-between, and like you said, it can cycle more than once. The the geology can affect the weather, which can cause strange weathering in some places or excess wind scouring or mm-hmm. more rain, which modifies the geology, which then modifies the weather. So yeah, it's this weird, weird loop. <laughs> but if we step back and just look at the present, yep. we've got this big mountain range, wherever you are in the world that you want to think about, mm-hmm. and you have wind that approaches it. By necessity, since the air cannot go into the ground, (laughs) it has to rise. Right, exactly. I think the way we're picturing it, so just for people who aren't familiar, so we've got the the Rockies, this north-south range, and then our prevailing winds are westerly. So as these winds come up the western slope, it rises. And what does rising air do? It gets bigger, it expands, and it also cools off. Right, so if you think about air... An air parcel is what we always talk about in meteorology, mm-hmm. which what exactly an air parcel is, it's a, it's a theoretical construct. Could We're going to say... You, could you link in your UPS video? <laughs> could you do that, please? Yeah. Yeah, I'll link in this uh, this video that I made when I took thermodynamics in, you know, 2008 or something. Uh, but if it's a spoof on air parcel, but... It's beautiful. <laughs> imagine, if you will... You have the entire atmosphere, and you use some kind of magic lasso or magic marker, and you're able to draw a 3D blob of air. Mm -hmm. And we're going to follow that blob of air over the mountains and see what happens to it. Because by having a finite thing that we're talking about, we can do thermodynamics on that. Right. Doing thermodynamics on the entire atmosphere as a part of it flows over the mountains is a little complicated. It's it's very disturbing how much in class I find myself explaining that we don't really understand anything about science. Like, <laughs> But it's so true, and especially when you do meteorology, you know, the first thing you do on any homework or anything is what assumptions are you making? And this is just one we have to make to physically understand everything. Right. So... You get your parcel of air, it goes upslope on the windward side of the mountain, and the pressure gets lower, so it expands just like a balloon would if you were to take a balloon on an aircraft. The outside pressure is lower, so the balloon expands. We know that from the ideal gas law, which we'll, <laughs> we'll have to talk about, mm. <laughs> that its temperature is going to go down. If you use those little cans of computer duster or I guess even <laughs> hairspray, any, anything that's a pressurized can of something, mm-hmm. when you spray it, the air inside is going from higher pressure to lower pressure. It's expanding. That's why we compress it so we can get more in there. Uh, and you'll notice it gets cold. Right. 
Exactly right. Right. Um, so, same effect. <laughs> did you want to talk about the ideal gas law now? <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> I, so, I love, so, I love the ideal gas law because it's super easy. And I also remember in chemistry, um, we got this warning not to cheat. And this was one of the things that they used as an example. Some kid wrote the ideal gas law. This is the way he chose to cheat. And it's such an easy equation. And he got, you know, kicked out of school for writing this on his hand. <laughs> and so I mean, this one's actually PV etched. PV equals NRT, right? Exactly. This one's etched in my memory forever. It's pretty easy, but it's also really great. Even if you're not mathy, that's fine. Because it's a really great way to talk about pressure and volume and how they relate to temperature, too. Right, and the N is the um, the number of moles of gas. Yeah, I so never care about that. How, how much gas there is, and R is a constant, right. which changes based on what your gases are. Right, exactly. So if we say those are constants, because we're looking at a, a parcel of a fixed N, and we're going to assume that we've got the same gas composition going upslope, We'll throw those out, and you can see that as pressure goes down, temperature has to go down too. Exactly, exactly right. So that's kind of a cool thing to keep in your keep in your head, and it makes this a little bit a um, little bit easier because the next thing that we're going to do is make it harder <laughs> by not just talking about <laughs> air, but air with moisture. And in this case, we're going to talk about water vapor, right? Um, and so when you introduce water vapor to this dry parcel of air. The physics starts to change a little bit because as you expand and the temperature goes down, if you've got water vapor in your air, this is going to cause more warming or cooling or uh, causes the air to warm or cool less per kilometer that it goes up in the air. And we actually right. have a name for this <laughs> in meteorology, right? And they're called lapse rates. In this case, this is the moist adiabatic lapse rate. Right. And since you have that water vapor, like you said, you, you've got something that has uh, high latent heat or specific heat. So you can, it takes more energy to warm or cool the parcel with water vapor by one degree than it does the same parcel without water vapor. Right. And another interesting thing to keep in mind here is that you think of, okay, we're adding water vapor to our parcel. The parcel gets lighter <laughs> when you do that. <laughs> because water vapor has a density that is our, a lower mass per mole or lower density than dry air. I love this. And that always messes people up. It does, but you say... Is adding water vapor, vapor to this going to make it more or less dense? And everybody says more dense. Yeah, and you say, exactly. But clouds float. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> it, it is a very backwards It is. I think it's because if you think of moist air, you just think it like feels more oppressive. And I think that's the intuitive thing to think. And I always remember this is how... This is how people fail thermodynamics because there's always these trick questions in there about how far is your baseball going to fly if you're... <laughs> <laughs> right. your relative humidity is a certain thing i specifically remember that one our thermodynamics teacher loved baseball so sabermetrics yep uh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so this moist air is actually yeah less dense it's interesting yeah so that's something that's interesting to keep in mind but as our parcel is going up the mountain 
it's going to cool at this moist adiabatic lapse rate, like Shannon said, which turns out to be around 5 degrees Celsius per kilometer that it goes up. Okay. Or down. Great. Warming. That makes sense. So the air gets to the top of the mountain, and as it's cooling, something interesting has happened. <laughs> it's becoming more and more saturated Right. And eventually, as it cools, just like your cold glass sitting outside on the hot, humid summer day, it's going to condense, and you're going to get clouds and precipitation. So you're going to lose a lot of that water vapor out of the parcel as it goes up slope. Mm-hmm. And when you condense, you're not just losing that, you're releasing some latent heat as well. Yeah, and... A decent amount of latent heat. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. This all this all goes back into hurricanes too, but that's uh, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Well, actually, we've right. already talked so, about that too, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We've talked about that's heat right. pumps. Yep, so there you go. So there you go. You're you're warming some from this latent heating, but you're still cooling as you're expanding and going up. Right. You condense, and then the moisture goes, or the air parcel goes over the top of the mountain, and just like the air couldn't go into the ground going up it also can't just go straight off the top and keep going because then denver and boulder would be in a vacuum (laughs) nature abhors a vacuum (laughs) so the air has to come back down the mountain and you would think that it's going to come down the mountain and end up the same temperature it was when it started this whole mess right i mean if if this were easy then everybody'd be a meteorologist but it's not true (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't because it lost all of that water vapor, which we said makes the lapse rate lower. So when it comes down the mountain, it's going to come down at what we call the dry adiabatic lapse rate, which is about 10 degrees Celsius per kilometer. So twice, twice the heating as you had on the way up. Yeah, and if you don't think in kilometers, because (laughs) it's a difficult thing, that's a degree every 300 feet. And those are big mountains. Which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you look at the mountains and you say the air's warming a degree for every 300 feet in elevation that it loses coming down the mountains. And you wonder why we don't live in a blast furnace. Yeah. And, and I will tell you that in the summertime there, you'll see those days. You'll see those blast furnace oh, days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. You thought it was windy in Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I will say that those are some of my favorite meteorology words. Adiabatic. I don't know why. I love it so much. You know, my thermodynamics professor, Dr. Chilson, uh, hi, if you listen, hopefully you do, uh, <laughs> he would, on Halloween, wear a shirt that had the Batman symbol on it, and his Halloween costume was 80 a Batman. 80 a Batman. That's yes. amazing. <laughs> and not surprising <laughs> at all. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Um <laughs> Okay, so back to this. Um, I will say, too, back there, before we dumped all our moisture, or while we were dumping all our moisture, there's a whole bunch of these orographic effects that happen here, right? Um, If you think about the western slopes, they usually get a whole lot of snow. Well, this is one reason why. Um, That's not to say you're not going to get any snow on the other side, but also a lot of places, um, mountains essentially act to block all this moisture, and you can create a rain shadow on the other side, and this is sort of how you form, this isn't sort of, this is how you form deserts as well. So this orographic effect has a big deal on both the weather and the climate. Oh, yes. <laughs> and 
it, it is classically dry yes. on the leeward side of the mountains. And here is where we might have some contention because I said that there could be cold orographically driven winds. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the way that these can happen is that you get a relatively dry Arctic air mass, at least in our case, Arctic air mass. So a very cold air mass that doesn't have a lot of moisture that gets lifted up the mountains. It expands and cools, but there's not a lot of moisture to come Uh out of it. Okay. So it was lifted roughly dry adiabatically. It comes down dry adiabatically. And the only difference is it's about the same temperature, but it's really fast now. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. And you're not, you don't have all that latent heat. Um, of condensation happening, so you're not also heating it up in addition to the compressional warming. Okay. Right, you don't have that. You've got the same lapse rate going up and down, and coming down, you've got cold air that's higher than it should be, so you get this density-driven flow. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's all it's all right. it's all relative, right? So, I mean, if it's cold coming in and cold coming out, versus, <laughs> I get it. Right. <laughs> okay. Fine. That's fine. Let's talk about the warm ones, though. They're more fun. <laughs> So, right. <laughs> so your now dry air mass is cranking down the mountain because nature pours a vacuum and it's warming up a degree every 300 feet. I've never actually made that made that um, correlation. I mean, 10 degrees C per kilometer sounds like a lot. So, yeah, I did that calculation last night and was <laughs> a little shocked. It's funny because I think we both feel like, oh, we're totally comfortable in SI units. And then you do something like that and you're like, oh, interesting. You're like, I can run 300 feet in a relatively short amount of time. (laughs) Relatively, yes. (laughs) Um, Maybe not much more than 300, but... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's pretty interesting. Well, you definitely raise more than a degree (laughs) when you're Uh, trying to do that. That's true. That's true. Um, But, you know, there was a a Chinook event in Montana in 1972 (laughs) that actually brought the temperature from minus 48C to 9C. That's minus 54 Fahrenheit to 49 Fahrenheit in 24 hours. Almost 100 degrees. Right. Isn't this unbelievable? So (laughs) four degrees an hour, roughly. Yeah, this is great. So they described Chinook winds. This was actually a... um, in my intro meteorology lab, we talked about this event um, and the local descriptions of Chinook winds up in this area where they likened it to um, if a man with a that's has a horse, he's riding on a wagon, and he's going along at the speed of the Chinook wind, that the horse is up to his neck in snow, the wagon wheels are stuck in the mud, and there's dust blowing out behind them. That's sort of the quickness <laughs> that they describe the uh, weather changes with some of these Chinook wind events. I mean, 100 degrees in 24 hours. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> this is where Fahrenheit's much more impressive than Celsius. <laughs> it's true. You get a, It's units that we're a little more used to, and it is a, a bigger swing that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, minus 48C to 9 degrees C is still impressive. But <laughs> right. So there's another event that happened actually in Boulder in 1982 where there were recorded maximum wind gusts of 137 (laughs) uh, at the the Mesa Lab here, which is 600 feet above the city. Uh, 
that was one of the last reports before the power went out, I believe. <laughs> uh, and it actually caused damage that's equivalent to an EF1 or EF2 tornado. Oh, there you go. And this was in the middle of the night, too. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So there's some really crazy things that can happen with these. But we haven't even talked about a couple of the cool things that happen when the wind gets to the bottom of the mountains, other than that it blows really hard and is warm, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, I want to say, too, if, if you're having trouble thinking about this compressional heating business, um, it's sort of the same thing if you think about, this is sort of an analogy I use for for those of us that don't talk in terms of dry adiabatic lapse rates. <laughs> and it's if you think about compressing the air in a bicycle pump, right? The more you compress it, the more that pump sort of pushes back against you, right? It's fighting you. Um, and so as we've talked, we talked about it on the air pressure show and everything else. When you mash that air down, because we're talking about this little parcel, right? It's going to get warmer. And so right. moving faster, getting warmer, hence these things. So what happens when we get down these winds? So when once you hit the plateau, you have wind that's moving very fast we know that things don't like to change speed and direction <laughs> instantaneously. Yeah. Uh, so you get this thing called a hydraulic rebound or a hydraulic jump. Okay. Okay. Which, remember, we think about air as a fluid, so that's why we're calling it hydraulic, because you can see this happen with a fluid. Mm -hmm. But get a, a syringe or, I don't know, turkey based, or what's the... On embedded.fm this week, they had the, the technical word for that. It was a spigmanometer. <laughs> Spigmomanometer, uh, actually. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and fill it up with water, squirt it down in the sink at a little bit of an angle. And you'll see the water doesn't just hit the sink and go flat. It actually kind of jumps back up a little, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You yep. get some rebound. The wind does the same thing. Yeah. And it actually produces this series of waves of the atmosphere that we call Lee waves. Mm -hmm. And you get some really cool clouds on these. <laughs> you do get some really cool clouds in the Lee waves. And in the first, generally in the first trough of the Lee wave, you actually get very large horizontal vorticities, which <laughs> is the fancy way to say that the air is spinning uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> about a horizontal yeah. axis. Yeah. And these are called wind rotors or mountain rotors. Which are terrifying. They're huge, oh, the, yeah, they're, they're terrifying because a lot of times you can't see them. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the way you find them is by flying your passenger aircraft into them. Right. Um, if you're lucky now, when you're looking at these rotors, so it's a horizontal vorticity. So it's just this, you know, horizontal tornado essentially, right? Um, and right. when they're going up, they create... It's, it's uplift, so you're actually getting clouds. So you can get sort of like, we've talked about cloud streets before, something like that. So you can get these bands of clouds that just sort of look like they stand there, right? Right. And, and these are, they're fascinating to look at. I know you can see them in some forms of radar uh, mm -hmm. as well, where you're trying to really analyze what the wind flow is in the atmosphere in these vertical cross sections. But think like you're a pilot. <laughs> and you're going through a very short period rapid change in wind. So let's say that you're coming in, and all of a sudden you've got a lot of upward motion of the air, a high W, as we would say in meteorology. 
and so your plane's going to get lifted up. Well, you want to go down, so you're going to push forward on the stick and reduce power because you want to stay at the same level or go down. But now you fly into the other side of the rotor where the air is going down, down. very fast, yeah. and suddenly your nose is pointing down. Yeah. Yeah. And this has caused air traffic crashes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I showed when I TA'd an intro to meteorology class, I found out I had a bunch of aviation management majors in. And so I pulled some NTSB report data. Mm -hmm. And we looked at old black box data of planes that were coming in on approach and got slammed 60 feet down in a fraction of a second by Ah, these winds. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a mistake. Yeah. Not a mistake you make uh, more than once probably. No. So a lot of airports that are at risk for this kind of thing have wind monitoring networks all around the airport now, mm-hmm. and they'll actually start uh, waving off landing attempts when they detect dangerous conditions. Yeah. Which, you know, if you don't have enough moisture in your air to create these clouds on the uplift side of these rotors, that's that's when it's very bad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not good. But the, the clouds themselves besides that rotor part, um, are pretty neat because they can stay in place for a long time. And they have a lot of cool, cool names, you know, like standing wave clouds. But I also found this. So we've talked about fern winds before. And uh, some people call them fern wall clouds. Hmm. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. There you go. Learn something new every time you listen, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And this was this was a great show to remind me kind of how these things work and why thermodynamics is really cool. Oh, did you say that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It, 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 that was my favorite undergraduate meteorology class, I think. Wow. You know, it might have been mine too. It got a little hairy yeah. after that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Klausius Clapperon. You know, I knew you were going to say that. I was trying to save it. I knew you were going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get back to good old Clausius Clapperon here in a minute. Um, I do want to say that these these wind events, you know, whatever you call them, Chinook winds or whatever, um, they have long-lasting effects. So they're caused by the mountains, and we're talking about them by the mountains. But, I mean, we see the effects of these things as far out as Oklahoma, though. Yeah, I mean, you can observe them on your state observing system, the Mesonet. Right, exactly. So the Mesonet is a fantastic, um, really dense meteorological um, data network all throughout Oklahoma. And, you know, we're close enough, the panhandle of Oklahoma, so the far, far western parts, are close enough to the mountains. And it's still high enough. I mean, it's almost 5,000 feet out there, 4,400 or something like that, um, that we get to see some of these events. So you'll have... Less of the the temperature change is less extreme because you're already out on the flats, but um, big wind gusts, um, you know, changing 20, 20 to 30 mile per hour changes in 10, 20 minutes. So we still see the effects of those. So these can be really large events that do a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely do cause uh, a lot of damage and they can be pretty sudden, as you've mentioned, through some of these stories. But those aren't the only stories about Chinook winds, right? Right. I mean, so we talked about, you know, the guy driving his driving his wagon through them. But also, and maybe this is probably 
where the name Chinook Wind comes and why this is more something you see up north. Um, and this is a story I tell in a lab that I made up also um, in our native science class. And it talks about the origin of the Chinook Winds. And it's a Yakima legend. So Yakima, it's a town in Washington. So these are tribes from up in that area, the Pacific Northwest. And um, it's kind of a cool little story. And they talk about there was a group of brothers, uh, Chinook brothers and Walla Walla brothers. Okay. So there's two different brothers and they were always fighting. Um, some of the stories talk about these people as giants. So they lived a long time ago and there were five brothers on both sides. Okay. And whenever <laughs> they fought and met, they caused the wind to blow. All right. So All right. they're always fighting. They can't get over it, right? They made these winds sweep over across the country, and it made it very hard for the people because they were always <laughs> changing the temperatures, right? The Walla Walla brothers had a cold wind. The Chinook brothers were a warm wind. Um, it froze the rivers, thawed them. It made a lot of floods. Really hard for the people to live there. And so they said, this has to stop because our people are not happy. And the Walla Walla brothers said to the Chinook brothers, let's wrestle each other. And whoever wins gets to live. Whoever loses gets their head cut off. Okay. All right. Yeah, happens a lot. <laughs> Seems a little extreme. <laughs> exactly. Um, but as in many stories, there's always this troublemaker. And in this case, it's Coyote, who is a very common troublemaker throughout a lot of Native American stories. And he was the judge. He was going to be the one to cut off the heads of the losers. But Coyote could never play by the rules. And so he went to the grandparents of the Chinook brothers and said, you don't want these Walla Walla guys to win. Why don't you throw some oil on the ground so they slip and fall? Great. Grandparents are going to do this stuff for their grandkids. So they go out, throw right. some oil on the ground. <laughs> but because Coyote's never satisfied, he goes to the Walla Walla brothers' grandparents and says, why don't you go throw some ice on the ground so the Chinook brothers don't win? So they do that. Now, because they did it last, that's who won. The Walla Walla brothers killed most of the Chinook brothers, actually all the Chinook brothers. Coyote cut off all their heads. That's not the end of the story, though. <laughs> so the oldest Chinook brother had a son. And they kept this boy a secret from the Walla Walla, Walla Walla brothers. So for a long time, it was very cold because the only winds that blew were the Walla Walla winds. So these north winds, really cold. Everything was icy. Young Chinook grew up. He was trying to get better so he could eventually defeat them. And he grew up big enough, and he said, I'm going to put a stop to this and avenge all of my uncles and my father. And he called the Walla Walla brothers out. And they said, oh, great, there's another one of you. We'll do the same bet again. So the young Chinook, he had worked so hard. And again, no one forgot this. Coyote came in, told the Walla Walla grandparents to throw ice on the ground. Then he told the Chinook grandparents to throw oil on the ground. So who's going to win now? Well, Chinook beat all but one of the Walla Walla brothers, and he gave up. He said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm obviously going to lose. And so Coyote had killed all the Walla Walla brothers but one, and it was this young Chinook man that was left. So today, instead of there just being cold north winds there, the Chinook brother, or the uh, Chinook son, can also blow his wind, which is a warm wind, right? Coyote hmm. let the... Walla Walla brother live, even though he gave up, he still let him live. And he said, you can only blow light winds now. You can never freeze the people again. 
And he turned to the Chinook son and said, you can only blow hardest at night. And you should first blow on the mountain ridges to warn the people. And so now in the Pacific Northwest, winter is only a little bit cold instead of being frozen all winter long like it used to be. Hmm. I had never heard that one. <laughs> so it's really interesting because you can take that as a story. Okay, neat. But you can also think about stuff like people have been in the Pacific Northwest through the last ice age, right? So people knew that there was ice there. There's a lot of really famously sculpted ice and glacial landscapes up there. But there right. aren't really a lot of glaciers now. And their winds are kind of temperate. Um, and it's kind of neat because it has to do a lot with the topography and some of these orographic things that we were just talking about. So it's kind of a cool little legend that relates all of that back to an easy-to-remember scientific lesson about the climate of the area. Hmm. And it shows that people have been fighting over the thermostat for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> no big surprise there <laughs> but speaking of adiabatic <laughs> oh man i i think we have, we have to transition to this week's fun paper <laughs> yay so it's everybody's favorite segment fun paper friday yay. <laughs> um i had to say adiabatic there since you of course picked something that had adiabatic stuff in it <laughs> This has adiabatic, it has Clausius Clapeyron, <laughs> it has all kinds uh, of high-speed cameras and audio recordings and I some image tracking. I specifically wrote, well, I'm going to let you say say the title and tell everyone what it's about, and then I will comment. <laughs> okay, so the paper is Popcorn, Critical Temperature, Jump, and Sound by Verot et al. I knew this was... <laughs> You, you, I knew this was your pick because it contains, like you just said, high-speed cameras, Clausius Clapeyron, fancy microphones, and screw micrometers. <laughs> I made a well, list I as mean, I went down. <laughs> I'm predictable. Yes, yes, uh, you are. <laughs> this is a hilarious paper. Where did you get this? <laughs> I, I, I found this surfing through the dark archives of academia. Man, this is good. You know, uh, any paper whose first sentence is, popcorn is the funniest corn to cook because it jumps and makes a pop sound in our pans. <laughs> that, that, uh, that was in somebody's dissertation, probably. Oh, I love it. Of course it was. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, this is, again, one of those things that it's like, why do we pay to have this stuff done? But, I mean, there's totally a lot to get out of watching popcorn pop. There is. And they say, well, first of all, there's very little information in the literature on what actually causes the pop, which may seem intuitive, but it turns out not to be. Yeah. We don't know a lot about where this popcorn pops temperature-wise, the physics of what's going on. I can't help but imagine that the popcorn companies, you know, there's some person at Orville Redenbacher that has all of this worked out in a spreadsheet <laughs> that's, you know, locked up. <laughs> but oh i hope so <laughs> yeah I mean, there has to be a popcorn scientist right it's a food oh, scientist yeah that's a that's a thing it's so. totally a thing i would totally do this popcorn's one of my favorite foods so um <laughs> yeah um, and i mean it's it's a vegetable exactly clearly <laughs> especially uh. when you put butter on it totally 
<laughs> um, so the first thing they Protein. do is to figure out the critical <laughs> temperature at which popcorn pops. Just like you said, there wasn't much known about what that critical temperature was. Yeah, and so they put kernels in an oven, and in, I'm assuming this is like a laboratory incubator, and increased the temperature in 10 degree increment increments and let it set at five minutes at each temperature and counted how many kernels popped. <laughs> well, and let's get this straight. They didn't. Surely graduate students did this. <laughs> okay, true. Or they. I don't. This is something you could reproduce at home. Yes. <laughs> with a baking sheet, your oven, and an oven a, saves an thermometer. evening of time. Yep. This is some. But this is somebody's science fair project. Yep. <laughs> so maybe not with all the high speed cameras, but this part you just have to put it in at different temperatures. Count how many pop, and it was fascinating that there's a really sharp inflection point. So at 170 mm. degrees, only 34% of the popcorn had popped. Or 17 out of 50 kernels. Yes, 17 out of 50 kernels, exactly. <laughs> but if you go up 10 degrees to 180, 48 out of 50, or 96% had popped. That's a pretty good ratio. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you go way up, you know, 60% plus a little increase in that 10 degree range. And they actually say that there are a few previous measurements that were between 177 and 187. So they fall right in the center. And that's great. Um, what they also did, so using one of John's favorite things, screw micrometers, <laughs> was that they measured all these little kernels. There are 50 test kernels, both before and after popping to get their radii. Right, so they took it, uh, took three measurements and averaged them, so to get kind of a, a mean radius. And I'm thinking that they had to have each kernel in a little <laughs> aluminum pan or something. I guess so. If you're doing this at home, you could do it with foil. Otherwise, you have no way of keeping track of which is which. <laughs> which one is which one, exactly. I thought that same thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh. but they... Then try to do some very basic, something that people that took my course last semester will cringe at, uh, <laughs> some pressure vessel calculations. Uh. And they say, okay, well, we've got this hole thickness, and we know what its strength is roughly, and can we predict the temperature at which the popcorn should pop based on the pressure and all this? We'll get to that in a second. Um, the thing that struck me the most, still on the first page, was the ultimate strength of the hole is about 10 megapascals. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, and if you don't think in megapascals, that's 1,450 PSI. So a Even little over impressive. half a ton per square inch. Even more impressive. That's why you can't keep popcorn in a closed fist, right? It's just like a firecracker. It's going gonna, it's gonna to explode your hand. <laughs> well, not only that, you think about it, that's why if you get a kernel... You don't just crush it in your mouth because your teeth aren't exerting <laughs> yeah. a half a ton per square uh, inch yeah, exactly. on it. It's going to chip your teeth. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've fallen the unfortunate. Yeah, I had to have a root canal after that. <laughs> but anyway, Ooh. I digress. <laughs> Thanks, so, popcorn. <laughs> that's part of this study. Uh, then we can move into section three, which is titled Breakdance, the Popcorn Jump. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of the better um, 
better named um, subtitles in a paper. <laughs> right. So we'll gloss over the thermodynamics because we don't have time to get into it. We're going to come back to Clausius Clapeyron in another <laughs> show, I think. But <laughs> I had what serious. Causes- I had serious PTSD when I started reading this and saw the Clausius Clapeyron equation. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Oh, that was that, that's, that's like one of the best things oh, of thermodynamics. <laughs> PTSD. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. So, what causes the popcorn to jump? And they say, you know, it jumps maybe a few millimeters, maybe a centimeter when it pops. Mm-hmm. And this could be due to the gas ejection, the vapor ejection. So maybe like a rocket, or is it? the fracture of the hull, but to find out, well, you need high-speed video. So they used uh, a Phantom V9 at 2,900 frames per second, and they put a kernel on a hot plate and videoed it, and it was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And so surprisingly, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously popcorn contains a lot of water vapor, but they don't observe that motion due to the ejection of vapor, which I thought was surprising. Because intuitively, I guess that's what I would have guessed. Right. They actually see that when the hole fractures and the starch inside starts expanding, it extrudes out of the initial fracture area in the hole, making sort of this leg that thrusts the popcorn into the air. It's sort of like a, a flipper. Super creepy. <laughs> because yeah, then you, and you, then can you see eat, it. eat it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this is this is the other interesting thing about popcorn is you have this starch that when the hole finally breaks and you start extruding this out into the atmosphere, it is expanding and it expands in our favorite way. <sighs> it expands adiabatically. Yay! <laughs> and <laughs> Look at us tying it full circle. Right. And so adiabatically really just means with no energy exchange with the surrounding environment. Right. Uh, And this happens in a very short period of time. So we can consider that there is very little temperature exchange between the expanding starch and the air around the kernel. You're not going to warm the air up a ton. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) this is expanding and as it expands, it gets cooler, which we know, which means the starch gets kind of solidified into this puffy extruded foam that is popcorn. Delicious foam. Um, so this isn't unusual in the plant world. There are lots of weird plants that fracture and then spew their spores or their seed pods or something far away. Um, and it's actually not unusual in the animal world either. Coral reproduce in this manner as well by like shooting off pieces. Um, and I love figure three... <laughs> in this paper (laughs) and it's titled fractures and jumps and so it has this high-speed camera of this little leg of starch coming out of the popcorn and when you look at this picture you're like oh yeah i get that right and then it's also got a seed pod doing these fractures and then a person using their legs to do a similar you know a somersault essentially right um it's all the same stuff kind of neat and the acceleration so the popcorn goes from resting to about a meter a second or so. Right. And the acceleration from this 20 microjoules of energy uh, is 200 meters per second per second. That's 20 Gs. That's awesome. Uh, 
Yeah, so if we were tiny and sitting on the surface of the popcorn, we would be smushed oh, yeah. by the acceleration. <laughs> but they also quickly point out that things like fleas jump with an acceleration of 1,000 meters per second or 100 Gs, meters per second per second, or 100 Gs. Um, and that some of these plant spores are even higher than that, like 40,000 meters per second per second. Yeah. So I was impressed with the popcorn until I kept running. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's not the most and impressive plant <laughs> leg <laughs> extension. <laughs> it's not. But this leg coming out also introduces rotation. Mm-hmm. And this rotation, like you said, it could be compared to somebody, uh, uh, you know, a gymnast doing a somersault. And they said that they normally, a gymnast goes about 300 degrees, uh, whereas our humble popcorn <laughs> goes uh. much further, over 400 and, well, roughly 495 degrees, close to 500 degrees. Yeah. So we're talking about some pretty, um, pretty awesome skateboarding or snowboarding tricks right there. <laughs> Yeah, and they do some energy calculations, which we won't go into in detail, but they're really, they're physics 101, pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have some interesting charts. Uh, <laughs> they do. I will, I will say, they, there's a lot of kind of fun math in this paper. Yeah, all this math, you know, there's not really any calculus, or it, it's hidden in the form of analytic solutions. Yep. Uh, <laughs> So it's all stuff you can punch into a calculator and verify for yourself, which yeah. is kind of cool. Uh, the angular velocity is about 120 radians per second. And it's constant, which is interesting. Of course, the, the vertical velocity, you know, it goes up right. and it decelerates and falls back down. So velocity follows a regular projectile thrown into the air kind of curve. Mm -hmm. uh, but they actually make a really simple physical model based on how much energy goes into rotation, how much energy goes into... Uh, the jumping and all this, and they get order of magnitude the exact thing they expect from the observations. It's kind of cool. You don't get that very much. <laughs> yeah, they said order of magnitude, so not exact, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's good enough then, for government work. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, they have section four, which is pop music, <laughs> the popcorn sound. Gosh. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so this is, this is always interesting, you know, cause we're like, where does thunder come from, you know, and all this stuff, you know, so where does the pop from popcorn come from? And this one seems, um, seems fairly intuitive, I guess. Right. Even though they say, you know, we haven't really paid attention to this. Um, but so they think that in this scenario, this sound could be caused by the crackling fracture. So the sound with the fracture starts, first starts to happen, uh, the rebound, right of the kernel on the ground uh, or the release of the pressurized water vapor, which was quite significant. Right. And, you know, they did that. They recorded with this really nice microphone. They synchronized it with the high speed camera using the time honored tradition of breaking something in front of the high speed camera and syncing the sound like a pencil lead. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out I, I would have, I don't know what I would have thought, the fracture, it's such a small shell, but it's a lot of pressure. I, okay, I probably would have ruled that one out. I might have thought, though, that it's from the rebound because you're getting this very rapid expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, turns out it's actually nope. escaping gas. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if I, <laughs> it's like a popcorn fart, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> so if, uh, if you think about like the the champagne bottle cork, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah, uh, exactly. They make analogies to volcano acoustics where we hear the liquid magma uh, bubbles rising and popping and all this. Mm-hmm. We hear them with seismometers, but same idea. Um, I was actually quite surprised. I mean, they, they describe it as the short time delay of six milliseconds between the fracture and the pop. I was surprised it was that long. Yeah, I mean, six milliseconds is forever in the world of I know. acoustics. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought, too. I'm like, that's impressive. I would have... I would have thought it would have been harder to figure out than that, but with that amount of time delay, it's clear that it's not the fracture that's making the sound. Well, and what they hypothesize is that that six milliseconds is the time it takes. Once you get a fracture, you suddenly lower the pressure inside the pressure vessel. This gas is going to try to escape, but that pressure wave has to propagate into the center of the popcorn kernel. The gas has to go back out and escape and make the noise. It was sort of a hand-waving hypothesis, but mm-hmm. it's something to think about. Yes. Um, this is really neat. That, I mean, you say, like, why do we fund this kind of stuff? Well, it's cool because popcorn is acting in this way. Um, in their conclusions, they talk about that um, the popcorn dynamics of creating the popcorn is twofold. It relies on this fracture mechanism like explosive plants do, but the jump of its little leg, its little starch leg, is more like how animals would behave. So that's kind of neat. Right. And, well, you know, we're always looking for interesting systems to study and maybe modify and apply if they have a very efficient process that they use to some kind of industrial operation. I can't imagine exactly how you would apply this to an industrial operation, but if I could, then <laughs> probably wouldn't be doing this. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> no, it's one of those things where basic research, we're going to get something out of this in the long run. And for now, it gives us a fun paper Friday. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to have to have some popcorn now. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Shannon, if they have a fun paper that they would like to hear us talk about or any general show comments or would like stickers, we've got a few more sticker requests. Those have gone out this week. So if you'd like something to stick on your laptop water bottle, share with your friends. We're happy to send you something. How can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, you always find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And also we're on the Software Underground uh, Slack chat room on the Don't Panic channel. Right. Links to all of that in the show notes. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.